This is Bill Marshall dictating from my book, The Blueprint of Reality, Chapter 13, Optimism and Pessimism, Who Said Science Isn't a Religion? There's a quote from Wendell Berry that starts the chapter. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come to the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So, begin the chapter. We are gradually hypnotizing ourselves into a state of chronic pessimism and fear. But in so doing, we are placing our beliefs before us in such stark fashion, they are becoming impossible to ignore. Everywhere we turn, we see victims, an avalanche of terrorism, natural disasters, viruses, and allergens is burying optimism. Our children no longer climb maple trees nor skip down the neighborhood sidewalk unwatched like a slow creeping hearing loss that goes unnoticed until its teeth are deeply sunk into the cochlea we are slowly but surely becoming a race of defenders life has become less an experience than an enemy to be guarded against our media bombards us with the evidence that life is dangerous but there is a purpose to it all, and we are its creators. We create it to bring our beliefs into stark relief, and when we recognize and accept our beliefs, awareness expands. We can choose differently. Our natural birthright is optimism, but it is secondary to free will. Perception is not only a receiver of reality, perception is the projector of it. Perception, molded by our beliefs, projects outwardly in physical form, abstract representations of our inner states of being. More and more we are coming to believe in victimhood, and so perception projects the belief outward in physical form so that we can see it. In this chapter, I make a case for optimism, for it is easier to create in a natural state of joy and pleasure than it is to create in trauma, conflict, and suffering. Optimism is the offspring of trust. Heading, Pollyanna, want a cracker? Pessimists call optimists Pollyannas. Considering what we are taught about the nature of reality, the wonder is not that there are pessimists, but that any of us remain optimists. How any of us stay optimistic about life has to be one of the great mysteries of the past four centuries. 
We have done a bang-up job through science and religion of making pessimists out of the lot of us. For the evidence, we merely need check the sales records for drugs such as Zoloft, Prozac, and Xanax. Depression is rampant, and when you are depressed, you concentrate almost exclusively on misery and powerlessness. It is a vicious cycle. Pessimism creates depression, which creates even more pessimistic thoughts, which continues to create the evidence that your belief in pessimism is well warranted. Religion can have the effect of aiding and abetting pessimism because it tells us that a reward is to be had and that the reward is not in the moment, but in the hereafter. And so we are rarely present in the moment. Religion, as currently understood, can have the effect of robbing us of our innate optimism and like a crowbar, it pries us out of the present. For most of us, baptism is our first religious rite. If only Adam hadn't taken that bite of the apple from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In telling this story to children, the problem lies in that they are not sophisticated enough to realize it is metaphoric of our entrance into a world of duality not of sin. The scene is often described as a fall from grace. The word fall suggests a descent from a loftier place. It establishes hierarchy and an understanding that we must aspire to regaining something we have lost. The dogma is that we all come into this world with the sins of our fathers. Our parents tell us they love us and cherish us, but the big message is that we came with a problem. The story of Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden, when described as a fall, is the first blow to our innate sense of optimism. It is the first blow to our self-esteem. As the Woody Harrelson movie tells us, we are natural-born killers and we must guard against its expression all our lives. New heading, go to hell, do not pass, go, do not collect $200. For us to understand our own optimism and pessimism, we need to explore the beliefs attached to religion. Trouble continues to dog us after baptism. We are taught God loves us, but then we're hit with a contradiction the size of a rhino. Yes, God loves us, but if we sin severely enough, we will burn in hell for all eternity. Whatever happened to unconditional love? Why do we have to express it and God doesn't? If he did, we wouldn't have to go to hell. Whatever happened to condemn the sin, but not the sinner? For those of you that believe that unconditional love is a goal of life, why create a concept of God that condemns both the sin and the sinner? This contradiction worked its way into our collective psyche like a screw worm works its way into driftwood. The driftwood doesn't know it has a hole in it. 
to maintain the feeling of we-ness and that we are an individual manifestation of an aspect of God is not easy under such a barrage. Pessimism grows. This is but one small facet in the creation of our belief systems. We learn that we are so bad and God's love for us so great that only a sacrifice so large as the crucifixion of his only son could redeem us. Not a good picture for building self-esteem, but great for perpetuating guilt. The historical Jesus sees through much of the veil we have pulled over our eyes and says, I and the Father are one. What do we do with Jesus' startling and potentially transforming information? We assign divinity to him alone. God stayed up there, and we remain stuck down here. The Jesus Seminar came about in 1985, when scholars, led by the late Robert W. Funk, decided to do something about inconsistencies among some of the words attributed to Jesus in the four Gospels of the New Testament. Over the past 20 years, more than 200 scholars from around the world have participated in this semi-annual meeting. There is a thought process, a timber, a resonance that attaches itself to the nature of a human being. If I consistently write of love, peace, and understanding, and live those words outwardly in my life, people get a sense of who I am and what I am about. The Jesus Seminar came together to find what Jesus may have actually said in the midst of all that which Matthew, John, Mark, and Luke wrote that he said. How is the Jesus Seminar important to our understanding of optimism and pessimism? If a case is to be made for optimism, then it must have the ring of truth. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus tells us about God, one, being well disposed towards us. I will let Jesus' words speak for themselves. I quote, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls in the air, for they sow not, nor do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon, and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not 
much more clothe to you, O you of little faith. Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things to do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. End quote. Now Jesus' words challenge us to live a life based on optimism and trust. Seth and Elias tell us that we get what we concentrate upon, and concentration is based on our beliefs and not on thought. If we concentrate on fear, we will give ourselves the evidence that our belief in fear is well-founded. If we believe the world is populated by thieves, we better lock our doors and nail down our valuables because we're going to meet a thief or two. Being responsible for ourselves is an idea that in itself creates fear in many of us. We like order and rules that map out our course. Jesus tells us that the way to salvation is through a narrow gate and that few will take it. Many will remain on the wide road. John Sanford in The Kingdom Within says, The wide way is the way of mass identity. Individuality is fearful to those who have developed a habit of comparing themselves to others. Conscious awareness requires an acceptance, non-judgment, of differences, our own included. Keep in mind that acceptance does not mean you have to like what you have ceased judging. Jesus' words have layer upon layer of meaning. Sanford, an Episcopalian priest and Jungian therapist, sees Jesus as challenging us to become conscious. But, like an onion, Jesus' words have yet more layers of meaning. The narrow gate or constricted passage can also mean the way of self-responsibility, the wide way, that of blaming chance, others, or unseen forces for our plight, or luck for our good fortune, has been our choice for thousands of years. If we become ill, how much easier is it to say, I am a victim, than to address the issue we have invited illness into our lives to communicate. The issue may be nothing more than our desire to explore the experience of illness. If we are alcohol or drug dependent, how much easier is it to say that we are genetically predisposed to addiction than it is to take full responsibility without judgment of our choices? What does our addiction have to say to us? It is not telling us we are bad, 
It is comparing ourselves to others that tell us either we or they are bad or we or they are good. The Buddha has said that if you find him along your path, you should kill him. His meaning, of course, is that you are responsible for your own footfalls in life. He but shows the way to finding our own path. We have been exceptionally good at following the wide way. The religious dogma is that salvation can be won through a belief in Jesus or by getting off the wheel of samsara. But how does that equate to a narrow gate? We have always found it easy to be followers. It is time we believe in ourselves. This ain't rocket science. We usually don't think of science in the same way we think religion. And yet, if you are an atheist, science is revealed truth. Science is the predominant dogma of our age and has formed our beliefs as surely as Mesmer hypnotized his subjects. Don't get me wrong, however, science has done more to unite this planet than any religion ever has, and it has created the means by which we could destroy ourselves. It has united us by thinking it can know the whole, by examining its parts. We can see science is changing in this regard. It is beginning to realize that the elephant's trunk is not a snake. A mechanistic worldview, which includes evolution under its pessimistic umbrella, is disastrous for the psyche. What is there to be optimistic about if it is all just a machine? Machine has no heart. A machine has no compassion. A machine has no mercy. The Matrix movies point this out. The evidence, of course, is that there is little to be optimistic about. But the point that I will continue to make is that the evidence is all self-created. It does not pre-exist our creation of it. Seth tells us that root assumptions are those laws upon which there is general agreement in any system of reality. For over 400 years, we have strengthened our belief that we are chance occurrences and therefore helpless against the onslaught of nature. We have always known better. This is a quote. The most valuable thoughts which I entertain are anything but what I thought. Nature abhors a vacuum, and if I can only walk with sufficient carelessness, I am sure to be filled. H.D. Thoreau Our religion tells us life is to be endured, for the reward is in the hereafter. But Thoreau knew, he knew what Jesus was proposing in Matthew 6 was on the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. Seth tells us that nature is everywhere filled with promise and that it is against nature's purpose to even consider a negative future. The promise is not of mere survival, but of beauty and fulfillment. Nature is a born optimist. We are probably the only aspects of nature that have switched to pessimism. 
It is the gift of free will that has enabled that shift. In the way toward health, Seth says, and I quote, Each person is a vital conscious portion of the universe. Each person, simply by being, fits into the universe and into universal purposes in a way no one else can. Each person's existence sends its own ripples throughout time. The universe is conscious at every conceivable point of itself. Each being is an individualized segment of the universe. Then, in human terms, each person is a beloved individual formed with infinite care and love, uniquely gifted with a life like no other. End quote. This is quite different than what we are taught. The following is the same paragraph as it might be written by a scientist. Each person is a compilation of DNA and RNA that combines in such a way to create all aspects of the physical being. Each person's consciousness is created in the brain and is separate from the rest of nature. There is no consciousness in nature and our existence is independent of nature. We are formed by chance and machine-like forces that has no purpose other than to propagate itself. There is a spark inside all of us that rejects the scientific dogma regarding consciousness. It is not our fear of mortality or our egocentrism that tells us we are more than what science is proposing. It is a deep remembrance that there is no end just as there is no beginning. It is the spark of eternal life that we have chosen to forget until now. Life is not about survival of the fittest unless we choose it to be. And the sooner we can unlink ourselves from that belief through acceptance of the belief, the better our lives will be. This is a quote. All philosophies that stress the idea of the body's impurity or degradation should also be seen as detrimental to bodily and spiritual integrity. Such beliefs clutter up your conscious mind with negative suggestions that can only frighten the exterior ego and impede the great strength and vitality that is your heritage from leading you to the fullest possible strength and support. End quote. That was a quote from The Way Toward Health uh, from Seth. If consciousness transforms itself into matter, and matter represents idea construction, then it behooves us to recognize and understand our beliefs which are so influencing of our perception. If we begin to view our suffering not as random, unlucky events or caused by outside sources, but as self-created communications from the subjective self, then we can make the move back to a state of emotional and physical health. We do not need to experience trauma 
although it has been our choice to do so. Science is as much a dogma and a belief system as is religion, for it asks us to take as truth its proclamations and fights tooth and nail against anyone who opposes them. Both are pessimistic dogmas and are true for those that believe in them. New heading. Time is on our side. Yes, it is. Both science and religion look for the beginnings of things in the past, whether it's the universe itself or the emergence of a new species or an emotional wound. I understand the difficulty of thinking outside the box of time. It is probably the most deeply entrenched root assumption of this reality, and we do not need to abide by it. But time is relative and is a construction of consciousness designed to allow this particular point of focus we experience as humans to unfold. Without time, there is no matter, and the universe is created repeatedly in each present moment. This is important to understand in a discussion of optimism versus pessimism. If all time exists simultaneously, then the past is as affected by the present as the future is affected by the present. Taken further, the present is affected by the past and future, for all three exist in the present moment and all influence each other. In Seth's scheme of things, it is futile to search for origins in the past when time itself is relative. We have become enamored of the talking cure, talking here of Freud's couch, to find causes in our past to explain our current malaise. The release from the malaise does not lie in the past like some skeleton, but in the fleshy substance of the present moment. The present moment is our point of power, the launching pad from which the past and the future is affected. Understand the communication, which is never that we are bad, of the emotional wound and the beliefs that create it, and the wound will heal as long as we trust. Trust is knowing. If the present moment is the psychological platform from which all change is launched, then there is nothing to be pessimistic about. It is not a virus or an accident that creates our own destiny. It is us. But this platform of the present moment carries with it awesome self-responsibility. Pawn or king, pauper or queen, it is our choice. We are all equal in the game of creation. But if your God is God one, then you will remain a victim and a pawn, a ball bearing in a pinball table. With God, too, you are the ball bearing the table and the player. And that was chapter 13. Thanks for listening.